Father, send us your spirit and teach us your truth in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder how you feel about change. Are you the sort of person who relishes something new? Or are you someone who likes the familiar, likes things to stay the same and finds that comfortable? Everything changes and things move on. And sometimes that can be exciting and fresh and other times it can be quite disorientating and unsettling. And in the passage that we're looking at from Luke's Gospel this morning, we read some of the last instructions of Jesus as they're recorded in Luke um, to the disciples after the Last Supper. So although it's not evident to the disciples right at that moment, they are about to experience a huge change. They've committed themselves to following Jesus. They've seen Jesus work miracles, teach in extraordinary ways, and they've become part of a group with a new identity and a new sense of purpose. And the very next day, that's going to come to a crashing halt when Jesus is put to death. Now, there's much that goes beyond that, much that is new and exciting in the resurrection, but which they are not expecting at all. So what were these things that Jesus said to them in that moment when they were about to face such huge change? When he knew that he was leaving them and perhaps he wanted to equip them with some last words, some last thoughts, which would stand them in good stead. Well, let's see what he said in the passage we've had read to us. First of all, there is the dispute about who will be the greatest. And Jesus teaches them that they are not to lord it over one another. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves, he asks. I am among you as the one who serves. So the one who is greatest amongst you will be the least. That's a strange thought. We may be quite familiar with that now. Um, because we know it from the Bible well, but at the time it would have been very strange, very confusing. He says to them, you are those who have stood by me in my trials and I confer on you a kingdom. That doesn't quite make sense either, that standing in trials, suffering leads to authority in a kingdom. Then we have Jesus addressing Simon Peter directly and predicting his betrayal. But it also says, Jesus also says, once you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So even in predicting Peter's betrayal, Jesus is anticipating his restoration and his forgiveness and his ability to support the rest of the disciples, which again may not be what we expect. Sometimes we might expect failure or betrayal to be the end of the road, to result in um, punishment and uh, ostracism 
and disqualification from any ongoing service. And then finally, he reminds them of what they did before when he sent them out. Did I send you out? Did you lack anything when I sent you out without a purse or a bag or sandals? And they said, no, no, not a thing. So they might well be thinking, oh, well, that's the pattern. You know, we've learned our lesson. We've had that practical experience. Jesus has taught us how to follow him, how to live well. And we know what to do now. So we'll be doing that again. But he said to them, but now the one who has a purse must take it and likewise a bag and the one who has no sword must sell his cloak and buy one. So in other words, it's going to be different from before. It's not going to be the way it was before. Now it's going to be different. And in all of those things, in those reversals, the unexpectedness of the greatest being the least and the restoration after failure and things being different from before, there is a message that we need to be ready for change, that things are not always going to be the way we expect them to be or the way we would like them to be or the way that makes sense to us or even the way that they have been before. But God is a God who does things in new ways and often unexpected ways. And that's a simple but profound truth, which can be challenging to accept and to live with. Often it would be much nicer if things were always staying the same and familiar and comfortable for us. In turning this over in my mind, I'm reminded of how C.S. Lewis cottoned onto this principle and how he illustrated it quite potently in one of his Narnia stories. And you may well know the Narnia stories. Narnia is a fantasy world, which is uh, probably represents the spiritual realm in which four siblings, Peter, Susan, Edmund and Lucy, um, uh, enter into this realm and fight battles which represent spiritual battles. And in the story of Prince Caspian, they return to Narnia after a long absence. And they are trying to find their way through the forest, the wood, in order to get to the place they need to be. Um, and they are all kings and queens at this point, but they have not been in Narnia for a long time. And they're struggling to find their way. Now, Lucy, the youngest, is much more sensitive to being aware of Aslan, the lion who represents Jesus in the story. So let's um, join the story now and find out what happened when they're trying to get to um, the river uh, called the Rush, which they're going to need to cross and which Peter thinks he can remember the way to. Uh, here's the book, Prince Caspian by C.S. Lewis, and I'm going to read uh, an extract from it. They had come without seeing it almost to the edge of a small precipice from which they looked down into a gorge with a river at the bottom. On the far side, the cliffs rose much higher. None of the party was a rock climber. So they were stuck. 
Look, look, cried Lucy. Where, what, said everyone. The lion, said Lucy, Aslan himself, didn't you see? His fa her face had changed completely and her eyes shone. Do you mean, began Peter, where do you think you saw him? asked Susan. Don't talk like a grown-up, said Lucy, stamping her foot. I don't think I saw him. I saw him right up there between those ash trees. No, this side of the gorge and up, not down. The opposite of the way you were about to go. He wanted us to go where he was, up there. Edmund asked, how do you know that was what he wanted? He, I, oh, I just know, said Lucy. I could see it on his face. The others all looked at each other in puzzled silence. Oh, don't be so stupid, said Lucy. Do you think I don't know Aslan when I see him? Well, said the dwarf, he'd be a pretty old lion by now. And if he's one you knew when you were here before, it could be the same one. But what's to prevent it being any lion who's in these woods? Lucy turned crimson. I just know. I could tell it was Aslan. Well, said Peter, we see what you mean, but we didn't see Aslan. We, we don't think he was there. Shall we go up where Lucy saw Aslan or down? Follow the river out of the gorge. Down, said the dwarf. Whichever way it goes, it's bound to reach the great river and we can cross it there. Well, Peter, it's up to you, said the dwarf. Peter thought, and after a long pause, he said, we go down. Lucy may be right, but I can't help it. We must do one or the other. So they set off downstream, following the gorge, and Lucy came last of all, crying bitterly. When they get down to the Great River, uh, in fact, they cannot cross there and they have to toil their way back up through the woods and they return to the same place at the gorge where Lucy saw Aslan and it's the end of the day and they go to sleep. Lucy woke out of the deepest sleep you can imagine with the feeling that the voice she liked best in the world had been calling her name. She sat up trembling with excitement the moon was so bright that the whole forest landscape around her was almost as clear as day, though it looked wilder. Behind her was the fir wood, away to her right the jagged cliff tops, and straight ahead open grass to where a glade of trees began about a bowshot away. Lucy looked very hard at that glade. I do believe they're moving, she said to herself. They're walking about. She got up, her heart beating wildly, and walked towards them. She felt her own feet wanting to dance as she got nearer, and as she got there, she, there was no doubt that the trees were really moving. The first tree she looked at seemed at first glance just 
to be not a tree at all, but a huge man with a shaggy beard and great bushes of hair. But when she looked again, it was only a tree. The same thing happened with every tree that she looked at. But when they looked like trees, it was strangely human trees. And when they looked like people, it was strangely branchy and leafy people. She went fearlessly in among them, dancing herself as she leapt this way and that to avoid being run into by these huge partners. She kept going in the direction in which she had heard the voice call. She reached a circle of grass, smooth as a lawn. And then, to her great joy, he was there, the huge lion, shining white in the moonlight with his huge black shadow underneath him. But for the movement of his tail, he might have been a stone lion but Lucy never thought of that. She never stopped to think whether he was a friendly lion or not. She rushed to him. She felt her heart would burst. And then a moment she was kissing him and patting her arms round his neck and burying her face in his mane. Oh, Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, at last, sobbed Lucy. Aslan bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all round her and she gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Lucy, we must not lie here long. You have work in hand and much time has been lost today. Yes, wasn't it a shame, said Lucy. I saw you all right, but they wouldn't believe me. Aslan growled. I'm sorry, said Lucy. I, I didn't mean to start slanging them off. But it wasn't my fault, was it? Aslan looked straight into her eyes. Oh, Aslan, you don't mean it was. How, how could I have left the others and come up to you alone? Well, I suppose I could. But what would have been the good? Go back to the others now and wake them and tell them you have seen me again and that you must all get up at once and follow me. Is that what you want me to do? gasped Lucy. Yes, little one, said Aslan. Will the others see you too? Certainly not at first, said Aslan. Later on, it depends. But they won't believe me, said Lucy. It doesn't matter, said Aslan. Oh dear, said Lucy. I was so pleased at finding you again and I thought you'd let me stay. I thought you'd come roaring in and frighten all the enemies away like last time. Now everything is going to be horrid. Aslan replied, things never happen the same way twice. In the story about the children in Narnia, there are two things going on. There's the fact that some of the children find, are finding it very hard even to see Aslan because they're not alert to where he might be and what he might be doing. And part of the reason for that, the other thing that's going on is that all of them are expecting the same thing to happen as happened previously, which is that when they needed help, 
Aslan to come and help them at what they think is just the right time. And they're perplexed and confused that that's not happening. And Lucy has to hear the hard message from Aslan that things do not always happen the same way twice. And in fact, as the story unfolds, if you know the rest of the story of Prince Caspian, um, Aslan does come to their aid, but in a quite unexpected way, uh, and later on, but at a much more crucial moment. And the basic message that C.S. Lewis cottoned onto is that we cannot always expect God to work in the same way that we have known God to work in the past. Now that's um, can be quite ironic if we expect God to work in a particular way. And Christian history is full of incidents of people or groups of people who have experienced God working in a particular way and have tried to replicate the circumstances of that. They've carried on doing the same things over and over again, assuming that if they do the same things, God will work in the same way again. We might be prey to doing that as well. If we've experienced something significant of God, there is always that chance that we will try and reproduce that for ourselves, that we will want to do exactly the same things um, perhaps sing the same songs or have the same type of service um, or go to the same places, thinking that that is the way that we can be sure of experiencing God in the same way again. And it is a hard lesson to learn that things are not always the same twice over. And it's particularly sadly ironic if it is expecting God to work in one particular way, the way in which we've experienced God working in the past, actually prevents us, like Peter and Susan and Edmund in the story, from seeing what God is doing now, something different. We fail to recognise because we're looking for the wrong thing. It's possible that this principle is opposite for us at the moment because we know that we are approaching change. Things have been very disrupted for us with the pandemic, the way in which we uh, relate to each other and worship together as a church community has been severely affected by the time pandemic restrictions. And as those restrictions are lifted, We're going to have to negotiate something new. We're going to have to go through yet more change. And there may be a tendency to want to go back to the way it was before, to assume that things are going to work in the same way as before, that God is going to work in the same way as before. And that's understandable, and it would be very comforting and uh, reassuring if we could go back to how things have been familiar in the past. But the challenge of this passage uh, that we have today, as Jesus leads the disciples, giving them instructions, telling them to do something different than what they've done before, is that we need to be ready for something to be different from what's happened before. 
not that we choose to do something differently just for the sake of being different, but rather we recognise that God may have ideas, that God may work in a way which is different. And we need to be fostering our own sense of um, awareness and seeking after God and sensitivity to how and where God is active in order not to miss out on that, not to blind ourselves to it, not to make assumptions about how God is going to work in the life of the church in the future. Now that can be quite unsettling. Uh, it could be quite nerve wracking for some of us. Um, and I don't want to sort of say that we have to put ourselves into a position of being uncomfortable. But whatever our perspective is on change and on new things going forward, let's make our main focus on looking out for God, seeking after God's presence, seeking to join in with where we see God at work in the world without making too many assumptions about what that will look like. Let's not try and reproduce something that God has done in the past, but always be looking out for what God is going to do next. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for those last words of Jesus in Luke's gospel, in which he turned upside down many of the understandings and expectations of the disciples. And he made quite clear to them that what they needed to do next was something different from what they had done before. Lord God, as we emerge out of the pandemic restrictions and we face yet more change, help us to be sensitive to you. Help us to really look for you eagerly and keenly and to discern what you are doing without being blinkered or hindered by assumptions about what has happened in the past. In your mercy, Lord, help us all to negotiate whatever change is necessary and to be ready for the new things which you are doing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.